Shalom, my friends, <laughs> and welcome to another episode of the Robcast. Rabbi Joel here taking over, <laughs> switching roles here. We have Rob Bell sitting in the seat that usually is reserved for all of his guests, so we have switch roles. I am now higher than he is, only in physical form uh, at this point. <laughs> But uh, very excited that he has, and honored actually, that he has given me this opportunity. I don't even know how this came out. Maybe probably last, last time we were together, we talked about questions. And then yeah. afterwards, we, were, we both came to this idea, what if we just reversed it? And I think you were of, like, you know what, I need to take over. Yeah. It's so, like you were like, I'm tired of being in the hands of rookies. <laughs> I'm tired of being on this shoddy podcast. Let a pro take over. <laughs> Uh, so thank you to all of you for allowing me, not that you have a choice because you're just listening, but thank you to Rob mostly. And it is an honor and we're going to, I'm going to ask Rob some questions. Um, I think the only other person on your podcast who's interviewed you is Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, and I know other, many people have interviewed you. Hopefully this will be a little different. I don't know how, but we'll see. Well, it's like a rabbi cast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) My first question to you, we are going to talk about your new book which is making its way up the charts, shall we say, (laughs) on the New York Times bestseller list. But that's not why we're here. We're here to talk about your book, but I want to start with something different, totally different. Tell me about the best wave you've ever caught. Um... Oh my, I did not see that coming. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Got you already. (laughs) Look at that. You really... You just turned that thing around from the get-go. Because mm-hmm. you've been surfing for a long time. So of, of all the waves that you have caught over the years, which one stands out to you and why? Um, there was a, way, a, a glassy day in North Venice last year. No one was out. And the water was so clear that the... The sand, you see the sand moving beneath, and it wasn't that great of a wave, but it went for a long time. And sometimes a wave will break, but then there's a next section, so you can get to the next section, you can ride that, then that wave mm. dies, but you can, if you can connect it, you can connect the sections. And it was probably how it wasn't that impressive of a wave, but it just kept going. Uh-huh. And it was something about a pot of dolphins had just gone by. It was the normalness of it that I was, there was something perfect about it. I remember thinking that was not perfect and it was perfect. It well, wasn't the, the overhead thing where you, ha- like you reach up your hand and it's like you're in like a green, it isn't all the stuff you'd see in a magazine. It was, this happened on a normal day. It's like a Tuesday lunchtime or something. It's like so, one other guy out or something. And something about it was, I remember thinking, uh, this there, uh, it's like everything slowed down. There's no future. There's no past. Those are the moments. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's what stands out to me. So, what is it that holds most of us back from finding perfection and normalcy? Because what you just talked about was finding perfection and normalcy, but right. we tend to find we tend to look for perfection in the extremes, like the biggest wave or so what is it what's holding us back from finding that and what are the keys to being able to look at our own lives as that wave that is both normal and yet also perfect at the same time well if you think about it um i think it's if you think about things in terms of interiors and exteriors in terms of exteriors you we are living in a system an environment that pounds us thousands of times a day with advertisements that you are one purchase away from it so if you think about external, and then you add in business environments where there are sales numbers you have to keep, and there are academic environments people have to keep certain, and there are your congregation where there are needs that need to be met. Most of us are surrounded by environments that tell us if you could just achieve this, reach this, get this done, fix this, then. And then if you think about interiors, all the haunting voices in your head that tell you you're not worthy. Right, so those are all the things that keep us from fighting. Right. So what are the keys to, so, to, to, to so I would, fighting so, against Right, those? right, right. So my first answer would be to realize that there are these forces internal and external all around you and that w- the better you can name them, 
the better you can spot them for what they are and be like, nope, I'm not going to listen to you. Nope, I'm not going to get suckered into that. Um, we're good. I'm good right here, right now. Um, and a lot of it is, I mean, which is where the spiritual path comes from. Learning to observe, learning to, sh- it's almost like build the muscles up mm-hmm. to realize, oh, I'm getting yanked yanked off center again. Oh, I got pulled down that path again. Um, and then practice. What is it that you do um, that reminds you that everything we were ever trying to get, we already have? So, I mean, people light a candle, say a mantra, yoga, eat a meal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and, and the reason why I hesitate to answer it is what I've just discovered is there are as many answers as there are people. So what, but what are those, because you talk about how we get, we get caught up in those things and we have to name them. So if you could categorize the things that we need to first name, for, we need to learn to name these things first in order to overcome them, what would be a couple of those things that we tend to ignore the naming and we, we kind of don't deal with them, but what are the categories of things that we need to be working on the most to name to then be able to overcome them? Every voice that tells you you're unworthy, that you're not enough, that you're lacking, that there's something wrong with you, that if you were just, and then fill in the blank. And in my experience, we all have these, there's something different in every person's blank. If Mm -hmm. I was just blank, then I could like breathe deeply. (sighs) Could you mind sharing one of those for you? Like what was, what was something in which you oh, yeah. had to deal with that? Oh, here's an that. example. What you, the, uh, the joke you made at the beginning, um, this book, whether it, it does well, whatever that means or not, whatever. Like actually understanding that you do the work, you show up, you do the next thing in front of you, a lot of the outcome is actually beyond you. Yeah, but you can't negate the power of. of uh, I love it. You are not success, taking this. Right? I love it. Like so. So yes. Okay. Right. Humility teaches us that we have to continue to go at our best and keep going and never give up. But you can't deny the fact that when we when we feel something powerful within us and we are attempting to create or define something that part of our goal is to be successful in that venture. Yes. So you can't deny success. So. So let's take the book, for example, if it doesn't matter where you are on the you know, New York Times bestseller list, but what does success look like both for you in terms of this book, but how, how in general do you balance both that desire and need for humility and also the recognition that success is a powerful force that it's not oh, a okay. bad force? Got it. That's a good question. I think about it like a paradox. These two things are true at the same time. And... You throw yourself into it because there's joy in throwing yourself into it. There's joy in giving yourself to a cause. There's joy in the work. The joy of I'm here and I'm breathing and I might as well give my energies to something. And at the same time, you don't know where it's going to go. Certain outcomes are simply beyond your power. And so you both throw yourself into it and you surrender Mm. all at the same time. And the heart of your question to me is that there is this paradox at the heart of the whole thing. And if you lose the paradox, it's almost like these two polarities, yeah, which are not contradictions. The polarities are these two things that are true. If you lose either, so some people are like, I worked really hard, no one cares about that, and I got fired, so why even try? Here's why you try, because the joy is in the trying. Well, I tried really hard, and I'm going to control this thing, and I'm going to push it where it's supposed to go no matter what, and I'm going to white-knuckle it, and I'm going to lose sleep over it, and I'm going to just bludgeon the thing into submission, Um, even if it's not clearly in the flow of where things are headed. Uh um, Now you're miserable in a different direction. And that, if you can hold those two things, you throw yourself into it, and you hold it loosely. Um, And that the real path, generally, the paths forward that actually are paths worth walking generally have an element of paradox to them. That's and, how I think about it. And what's it. your personal strategy for holding on to that paradox? Um, all I have is this moment, and we're going to do this now, and we're going to see where it leads. 
Do you and have to remind yourself of that? Like, absolutely. What's your strategy of reminding absolutely. yourself of that exact uh, phrase? Ah, great question. Over time, enough things didn't go, quote-unquote, how they were supposed to, um, and, but it made a great story. So I think by now, that muscle has, the, the failure muscle has been built up pretty well. Mm. <laughs> that it, um, if it really does fall apart, well, then I now just assume that there'll be something interesting happening in it. And I think it's something that you build up over time. And when you're young, you just want to be successful. And so when the sound system doesn't work, or when people don't like you, or when you get some critics, you're devastated. And then as you get older, you're, you still hurt, you have a heart. To be misunderstood, to be hated, to be trolled, to be protested, still hurts. Mm-hmm. But you also know that it's part of it. It means you're in the game. So I think the, the, the bumps and bruises to me now are, oh yeah, this is what comes with it. What's one of those biggest bumps or bruises that uh, helped you to find that balance, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, to me, it started in my early 30s when there were people who didn't, uh, who thought I was a, uh, who thought I was a destructive force. <laughs> I mean, it started in my early 30s when a group of people got together and organized to have me removed from the church that I'd started, to have me, like, f- fired. And I had just started this church and was, like, giving my everything to this, and there were people within the church who thought that I needed to be removed because I was teaching that women should be free to be everything women are here to do. How dare you? Women's equality. <laughs> right, right. Um, and that is when I was, I learned that there are, oh, there are consequences to following, to doing this. Okay, and, and that's when it started. Now, you, you didn't, you weren't doing that in isolation dealing with that. So what, what kind of support system does an individual need in order to yeah. move through that process because you clearly would not probably have been able to get through that if you were just isolated by yourself. What, what do people need to keep in mind as they, as they reach those moments which they are bound to do if they're right. trying to right. succeed at something? Right, right. What, what, what does a support system look like or how does one define a support system? You know what? I had friends who I would call them and ask them to tell me things. To this day, I have a couple of friends. I will call them and say, "Here's, I need you to tell me this." You know what I mean? Um, I have, a, I have, I have a friend like- in Boston. I have a friend named Tom. I have a friend in Arizona. I will ask them to tell me certain truths. Like, could you? And I and and this started. This started in my early thirties. There are certain friends. There's a friend I have from college who I would call him and say, "Could you tell me that?" this is all completely insane and we're all going to be fine. He'd be like, dude, it's totally insane. You're going to be fine. <laughs> he would just repeat it back. Sometimes he would have things to say. Like he would just email and say, I'm sensing this. He's a ver- like this one friend in Boston has a man of great wisdom. But there are other times when I would ask him, or Kristen. Mm. I would often ask Kristen to tell me certain things. Sometimes we know what we need to hear. We need somebody to speak it to us. Could you just tell me that I'm making a big deal about nothing? Mm. Or... Could you tell me this is a big deal? And my response to it is 100% normal. And she would say, yeah, that's, kinda, that's a big deal. And your response to it is 100% normal. Could you tell me that a year from now I'm going to laugh about this? A year from now you're going to laugh about this. <laughs> Have you ever tried this with Julia? No, I'm going to. Oh, Usually no, she's just pretty straight up. And it's honest. a fantastic exercise. Because you possess an inner wisdom. You, you have a, a deep knowing that knows... But then we're all then we're all over the place, um, and the amount of times when I've asked people to tell me what I already know, just speak it back to me. People love doing this, um, but it's a very powerful exercise. I'll try that. The second thing that helped me was not to, the uh, when I began to understand non-judgmental observance. Can you define that? This thing you're angry, you're sad. To stand in observance of it, mm. just observe. When I began to understand that you aren't your thoughts, um, that your thoughts, you're having this thought, you had that thought, you're going to have another thought, that there is a temporality to a thought, and that when you attach to a thought, 
I am the thought, then you it it takes you way way deep into something that is, it is a thought. You're going to have another one. It will replace the one you're currently having. So non-judgmental observance. Get out a piece of paper, get a pen, and just observe everything. I am furious with so-and-so. I want to punch them in the face. They have done this before. It hurts even more this time. Just observe everything that's happening within you. And then when you've gone all the way into the heart of the observance, then you ask this question, who's observing? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's what you do. What a... <laughs> uh, oh, okay. So my, la- oh, that was your version of so good. Uh, yeah. So good. How, what's, what's he, in Hebrew? Way, what's so good in Hebrew? Tov meod. So tov meod. <laughs> tov, because tov meod. Tov meod. Um, but when I came to, but, but kind of, when I came to understand the true self, um, who's observing? Oh, there's a part of me that is able to observe this experience I'm having. And that part of me is indestructible, timeless, infinite, whatever language you want to use for it. Is that God? Nefesh-ish. Somewhere between nefesh and the divine. Somewhere between soul and the divine. Somewhere in there. Image, the divine spark. There there is something within you that is going to go right through that. There's some essence. There's some joelness. Whether he's angry, frustrated, sad, terrified. There's some base note of joelness that just cruises right through that whole thing. And then it allows you to actually feel. So I can actually be angry in an observance of my anger. Yeah, it's totally normal I'd be angry. You've read it right, I'm angry. And then the anger passes through, and now we move on. As opposed to not acknowledging it, as opposed to stuffing it, repressing it, now you have this dark anger shadow that will come off in all sorts of ways. I'm sad right now. I'm sad about this. I'm happy about that. Yeah, that's the that's what's helped me. Where where does God fall into the support system? How for you or in general? Um, what's yeah. God's relationship to support? Yeah, I uh, I love the image of walking with God. Uh, to me, I think of it of God in images and metaphors. The uh, the the name Yahweh being like breath. God is breath. The divine is as close as breath. Um, this breath has been sustaining me my whole life. And each breath is a gift. And so even my, biologically, I am dependent on this next gift. Um, that's That's probably the most dominant image for me of God. This, this is a gift. It has a source. Uh, source is love. Everything's already been taken care of. I'll now receive again. And then in response to that, I'll give back. Yeah, that's helped, that's helped me. Uh, um, abstract notions of God don't help me as much as images and metaphors. I often think about God like music that you hear. Then you want to hear more, and you start to move to it. And I'm dancing. Now you invite other people to dance. So there's that. You make me think of the walking with God. That that cheesy picture of two foots. That you know, two <laughs> sets of footprints in the sand, and then it's one set, and it's supposedly it's supposed to be according to that one. It's God carrying you. But what what about those people who? There's two sets of footprints in the sand, and then all of a sudden there's one. But it's not that God's holding them. It's that God has disappeared. They're, they're alone. Yeah. Right. And I, um, uh, doing this bookstore tour, I've been talking about the Bible is as much about the absence of the divine as the presence. It's as, it's Which as, means what? It's as much about praise God as where are you? Um, what, why is the absence of God important? Because intuitively you would think, you think absence is a negative thing. Absence is not right. a positive thing. So how? So when you say that the, yeah. the Bible is just as much about and, absence, so um, some people some people talk about how uh, half the Psalms are laments. Um, they're about the presence and the absence. You're shouting out, "Where are you?" But you're shouting out. You're shaking your fist at why didn't God fix this? But you're shaking your fist. So. You don't believe, and yet you believe that somebody is there to hear your complaint. 
of not believing? Um, and what is it that, what is it about the human soul, spirit, condition, essence that we can't escape? We can't get away from this idea that there's somebody there. Why are we still talking about this? Why hasn't science killed it? Why didn't the Holocaust kill it? Why didn't the death by cancer kill it? Why are we still having this discussion thousands of years later? What is it about yeah. us that something in our bones is like, we're not alone? So what is it? What, what is it that keeps us having this conversation, right? Because exactly. there are many, many examples throughout history and throughout the human experience that would make it very clear that it's uh, that absence is just the general way of being. Right. So, the universe so is why, a cold, dark why place. are we holding on to this even when it's not like in the Bible? God does not necessarily call out to us. There's no burning bush in our backyard. Right, you know? right, it, right. So we don't have those miraculous, supposedly miraculous experiences of connecting to God. And that frustration just builds up and up and that, and, and we still have the world kind of dumping crap all over us and so like how why so why do we keep insisting that why there won't is we just let thing? the idea go yeah what what is it that is made this such a timeless you know sense of connection even because, all of that because good makes no sense mm. good makes no sense and even the most hardened jaden uh my friends who are listening now who are like deep, deep, deep in the dark night of the soul. There are still, even if it's a small fl flower growing up through cracks in the pavement, there are still these mo This what happened to me is I went way down into, come on, this is all made up. This is fairy tales. I was actually a pastor of a large church when I was like, this is all ridiculous. I like went way, way, way in um, there was an extended period where I was like, come on, this is all just cooked up. There's nothing. But what I couldn't get away from was good. Unexplained goodness that was just sitting there. So is the world's natural state <laughs> one of evil or negativity and our job is to bring optimism and good to, to the baseline? Right. Is it good that's been, that's been corrupted and corroded? Is it an apple? That's got some because right, I'm trying to think of like original sin it, concept. Are, are we are we at the base of of human nature, um, flawed to the point where the entire purpose of life is to bring good to what what is already broken at its core, or are we naturally good and the world around us breaks us down, and our job is to repurpose the good and go back to that sense? I tend to be of uh, the latter. Okay, I begin with good. This, the, I mean, the Hebrew word tov, good. Mm -hmm. And I, and the creation poem, it's good, but it's free. And it has tremendous capacity to make a mess of things. It's free to actually be a world. It's free to actually be a creation. It's free to actually have storms. And you're a human being, you're actually free. It's goodness, with its goodness comes this freedom to actually make a mess of things. You can make something beautiful and you can punch someone in the face. How? And you're, yeah. the whole thing is actually free to be, it's not a simulation. It's actually free to be a world. And if it's that free, then it's also has all this capacity to break your heart. But isn't the Bible then about a set of laws that is supposed to inhibit our freedom? Right? Isn't, isn't it a bunch of laws and commandments of New Testament and Old Testament? <laughs> it, you, since you're asking about your questions, <laughs> you do them so fantastically with a poker face that I'm like, <laughs> he said he's punking me, but you just keep on talking. <laughs> Well, I'm trying hard here. You know, you're you're like the master. I'm I'm learning. You know, oh my word, learning you're from on, the teacher you're on, and fuego. Um, <laughs> you know what's interesting is I think there's two is to think about freedom. Two kinds of freedom: freedom for and freedom from. And for a lot of people, freedom is just freedom from freedom. I just need freedom from rules. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from a nagging family member. I just need freedom from. But in the scriptures, what you find is freedom for. Mm. Uh, it's freedom for cultivation, creation, goodness, hearing the cry of the oppressed, 
Um, and for a lot of people, the only way they can think of freedom is escaping from bad rules. Um, but you can escape from bad rules and you can escape from um, some heavy-handed authority figure. And now what? Uh, your freedom is for something. It's so that the full, your full energies could be given away in response to the gift. You received a breath now. Mm. What are you going to do with this gift? Um, and so a lot of people are like, I just want to be free. Awesome. So do I. Free, free for what? Like if you really could do whatever you wanted, what would you do? What yeah. would you give yourself to? Ooh. Speaking of free, we, we are living in the, the home of the free, right? Um, what's your perspective on what's going on in our country right now? And, and you know, I know you're, uh, you're on this tour right now with your new book, and you alluded before we, we started this podcast that there's, there's a kind of energy that you're finding as you're going yeah. out on the road. Um, how are we supposed to deal with what's going on in our country right now because I think it's more than just politics right there is yes. there is something going on that's both invigorating and also extremely depressing um, what what's your take on what's happening and how we're supposed to respond because I th I'll speak for myself personally I feel like there are many times where I feel like my hands are tied I, I don't know what to do I just I feel that something's not right and I feel the anxiety around me I feel it in my own soul and I feel from the people who in my community who talk to me and I'm sure you hear it too so what are we supposed to do with this what's how do we respond great question um, first I think it's helpful for people to understand that you're living, people always think they're living in special times. You actually are living in unique times. They're, every major massive new technology disrupts at a fundamental level. And you can go back in history and see when you get a new technology, and now it's the internet, but when you get a new technology, it disrupts everything and forces people to rethink how they view what it means to be human. Some would say the two major questions are, where does authority come from and what does it mean to be human? Are the two questions at every major disruption. So we're living in one of those moments. And so pe we have been here before as a, as a people where the ground used to be... I remember the first earthquake. I was in the 93 Northridge. Uh -huh. I mean, I was miles away from it, but I was here in Southern California, and I remember waking up in the middle of the night because my, the, and the noise was so loud. I'd never heard that noise. And I was running down the hall of my apartment, and the walls were going over to the left and then over to the right, and I heard this horrific splashing noise. And I was like, what is that? Where is... Who's pouring water? <laughs> and in the area of, the, of my apartment building at the time was this giant fountain. I mean, it mu must have been 10 foot across concrete fountain. And in the earthquake, it was pitching it up one side and throwing water off one side. I mean, out of five ton giant concrete fountain. <laughs> and then it was pitching water off the other side. The earth was literally, cur it was like, you could see it curving. Um, but what was so interesting is never in my life had the ground moved. And that was what was so psychologically devastating. And then there were the aftershocks following. Right. Where we, Kristen and I would be sitting in a stoplight and all of a sudden the car would start shaking. And you'd be like, I've never been in a car. And, and the, literally the intersection is trembling. So we're in one of those when things that weren't shaking are shaking. So you think about the invention of the telescope. And the earth at that time, people had a hierarchical view of what it means to be human. There's the gods, God, then there are angels, then there are people, then there are animals, then there's the created order. So there was a very clean way people saw things. The invention of the telescope, oh, wait, the earth isn't the center. Uh, the sun is the center, and the earth actually moves around the sun. So this one invention, the telescope, rattled the whole way people saw what it means to be human in your place in the universe and in the world and in relation to everything else. Mm -hmm. um, so you, we're actually living in one of those. And to me, that's the first step is just, yeah. And whenever you have a disruption, there will be one of two responses. You either dig in your heels and entrench and insist that it go back to how it was 
or you let the pain of the disruption break you open and you become open to new possibilities and new tomorrows. And you only get there if you allow the pain to actually break you open because it breaks you open and you become limber and pliable and open. Um, what do you see your role in, in helping this country or at least people who follow you? What, what's your role? Cause uh, I, I want to, I'm, I'm curious how you see, <laughs> how you see your perspective and whether like, is your book an example of your role? What about what you do? Uh, no one's is, ever asked is, that. Is trying to help us respond to the world oh, around us, question. especially at this time. I. It's very, very, very important to me. It drives me. I want people to know that humans have been here before. That's like a really, really big deal to me. Why? Why do we? Why um, is that? Because the key? I think your fundamental cry is. You think it's for solutions, but I think it's first and foremost for solidarity. I think generally, especially in the modern world, people assume that what they're looking for are answers. But I actually think your deepest, most primal ache of your soul and heart is to not be alone. Think, and that if you could take a nice, clean, a nice, clean, neat answer, or if you could have some people that you are with in the question... You'll take, you'll take a tribe any day. You'll take a community any day. So um, you're a convener. You see yourself as a convener then. What's a, con a convener? A convener, to convene people, to, to bring people together. I think that's a central element of my work. So what are you bringing people together for? So I, if the first idea is realization, yes. and then upon yes. realization you convene yes. together, you gather together with your recognition of the brokenness of of where we are yeah right then what we're, we're together yeah we're all together okay where are we going okay uh i begin with the assumption that there is something for each of us to do and it will be located in space and time for this person where they are and that you have some passion you have some your, your, your heart is beating for something. And you, what you want is a sense of meaningful contribution. And you'll trade titles. You'll trade money. You'll trade everybody thinking you're awesome. You'll trade all sorts of things that everybody thinks is what they want for that sense of, I got this thing I'm doing. Business, art, education, accounting, uh, sustainability, food, uh, care of the body. Like I meet people, I, I never stop meeting people who are like, this is my passion. And you'll be like, that, that is, I never even knew that was a thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's what, that's the thing to me is so, I want to create an atmosphere through my work where you can see, oh, I'm not alone. All this stuff swirling around inside of me, I'm part of a communion of saints. I'm part of a larger human tribe that has been here before. I'm not alone. And then there's something for me to do here. So I begin with, there's nothing for you to do. Breathe, receive the gift, enjoy. And then out of that, now let's do some stuff. So for me, it's an endless infinity loop uh -huh. of action and awareness of doing nothing and then let's go do something. And so in my teaching, sometimes what I'm saying to you is don't do a thing. You're already at the party. Everything you're trying to achieve, you already possess. Sometimes that's, and, and then other times, let's go, let's do this. What's the thing? Come on, rally. Um, and, and because in my life, and I think in all of our lives, sometimes we need the one and sometimes we need the other. Mm. Just breathe, don't do anything. Um, you know what? Let's get to work. So you're also the ignition. You're the igniter. <laughs> oh, my word. And the igniter. convener and the igniter. Yeah, right? Because it's about <laughs> igniting that spark that may be lying dormant. But oh. I still, I want to push you on this. I want to okay, push, push you. Me. So great. You help people, because you do this, you, you help people to both recognize their potential, to, to recognize where they need to just kind of sit and what they already okay. own. And you also have the power of igniting uh, and initiating right, uh, forward momentum for individuals and communities. So now, 
when you when you recognize that that is your role and the and the gifts that you have as you, Rob, where where would you like us to move? Where do you want people to go collectively? If we were to ignite on a collective level, where should we be going collectively? Using all of our individual gifts, our skills, do you believe that that it's an individual journey for everyone, or is there a collective ignition that you want to spark that will lead us towards something? And if so, what is that something? And if not, yeah, what? okay. Um, does that make sense? It does. I mean, at some level, where because I, I, I'm really what I'm thinking is, <laughs> I, I, sorry. <laughs> I've been to a couple of things. I love with, this. I, I've been to a couple of things with you and I see people's response and I, and I feel, and any of you listening who've never gone and, and listened and learned from Rob live, you have to make it happen. It, it really is powerful. But what you do is you, you do ignite. There is this, um, there's a feeling in the room. Everyone say amen right now if you if you believe me. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Do There's people a, sh- do people say amen in no, your in your? They don't. Synagogue? I'm just okay. If you're doing uh, amen, yeah, you say amen. Amen. Yeah. But like if you're giving uh, like a teaching or a yeah. sermon on, on no, it's Shabbat Eve. No. Nope. But let's say you're on fire. <laughs> Rabbi Joel is in fuego, and you're just like, man, this thing is coming together. Do the people do they respond at all? They may clap at the end, but my dream, oh, everyone up, like, you know, like gospel style. That's the way it should be. That's no the way. way every gathering should be. But no, the, our, our, okay. our gathering. Well, but you're trying to flip it here. No, I'm no, going to, no. uh, oh, for sure. Um, I'm stalling. No, I'm not stalling. I am all of a sudden thinking we, we need to do an event where you do a Rabbi Joel sermon. I'm going to bring the crowd. All right. I'm going to supply the crowd. And it's going to be like waving white hankies. Like, yeah, come on. Bring it. We'll do it. <laughs> Testify. <laughs> okay. But so back to what my point was, though, was that <laughs> when you gather people together, there is this, there's this spark that's created. Um, so if you were to bring all of those people and all those sparks together, and you were going to bring all of your people together in one room, and you were to feel all of that energy what would you want all of that energy to be directed towards? Beyond, beyond each person individually, some sense that underneath all of these various individual paths, we all together form something, that there's a body of humanity. What do we form? What are we forming? I th- I think we f- I think that there is a collective body uh, in the New Testament they call the the body of Christ. I think it's actually an, what's called an emergent phenomenon. Mm. When you assemble various components, it creates something that has properties that are not present in any of the various smaller components. So a b- bunch of birds fly together, and they go left, they go right, they dip down, they dip yeah. up. Um, and if you were to look at each of the birds in the flock's brains, none of their brains are making a decision about fly left or right. But when birds fly together, a communal brain develops between them that can't be located in any of any one bird. Mm. And that a human body, your Joelness, my Robness, we are a collection of atoms, particles, cells, and molecules. And yet we possess these traits, personalities, characteristics that aren't present. We cannot locate your essential jolness in any of your physicality. So you are an emergent phenomenon. And so all of creation is a series of ongoing emergent phenomenons. And so the great question of history is, if everything bonds together with like to form something that has new properties, human beings all together, what do we form? Uh, and some people would say what we form together, that's actually what God is. Yeah, I was, that's... So some yeah. people would say that God is the emergent phenomenon. So this is why when people say, well, I can't see God in a chair. I can't see God. Of course, because it's an emergent phenomenon. And it's actually, this is a biological reality. So this isn't like a new idea or this isn't some sort of mystical thing. This is actually what we know about how creation is. Yeah, and, add, and, It's two plus two equals infinity, essentially. Right. And if you look at the Torah and the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, God does reveal God's self usually in, in, in a communal setting. Yes. Right? I mean, there are, yeah. a, few, uh, there are yeah. a few times where God is... 
emerges in an individual's experience, but there is a power of God's uh, creation when a whole community, I'm thinking, for example, at Mount Sinai. Absolutely. Right, where where a whole people is transformed, their identity is transformed from the Israelites Not to the, the sound Jewish of people. a bird chirping was heard. <laughs> Good old Midrash. Yeah. That. So, wow. What... Um, what else should we know about the Bible that's not in your completely incredible collection? You sent me of a text stories. when you first started reading it. Like this book is baller. It's baller. It totally <laughs> is baller. Yo, know, this book. I, I first of all, I think every uh, person who's training to be a, a religious leader in in any faith should read this book, and even wow. Joe Schmo should read this book too, right? Everyone should read this book because what you do with this book, the brilliance of this book, not only is your ability to tackle some of the most challenging questions and your, your part four is really, you even titled the questions that always come up. But what you do is you make the Bible accessible and relevant in a way that most people have not ever experienced. And also there are not many people doing it this way. To, to be able to combine our real life with something that is thousands and thousands of years old and to have them seamlessly come together in such a way that adds more depth and meaning to both our own life and the tradition, like that's incredible. And you've done that in this book. Uh, and and so, so my question would be, so is this your, is this your piece that you've been waiting to write your entire, how many books have you written? You've written a ton of books. Oh, this is the 10th book. Tenth I book. haven't been waiting to write it, but a number of my friends have said this is your most personal book. That comes up a lot. Yeah. Uh, this, this, in some ways, the, this book, there is an element to it where it's, this has shaped me. This is how it shaped me. It has, it, it, obviously it is, I mean, it has done something. It is, the subtitle really is true. That's what's interesting about this book. Like it really has transformed the way I think and feel. Even thinking about presently politically, this book has shaped how I see this thing. Even, even understanding that you're part of a system. And health will come from self-critique. And your survival and thriving and joy will have a lot to do with how well you can understand and critique the system that you're a part of. Um, I mean, these ideas... What do you think will happen to the systems that exist now if everyone were to read... Any, anyone who's connected to any faith community were to read this book, right? And to really to believe it and to, to own it. How do you think that would transform the, the systems that exist now? What would religion look like? Or Abs right, right. Um, that this book is about the, the God of the underdog, the God who hears the cry of the oppressed. So any system that develops power, wealth, shared resources, and doesn't immediately begin asking, how can we spread this? How can... How can we use whatever we've accumulated? How can we leverage this for the benefit of those who have no power, who have no accumulated resources, who have no wealth, who are in need? Um, the, this, this basic question alone, to me, will... Um, so, uh, last week, the U.S., the president's son-in-law, doing an arms deal with Saudi Arabia for $300 billion dollars. Um, these are not the best use of our energies. Buying and selling weapons is not the best use of this empire's resources. Questions should be questions along the lines of who's in trouble, who has needs, how can we help? How can we lift up those who are in trouble? So faith-based communities, in, in essence, are a key to Absolutely. helping us And redirect. the power... The power of the, of the prophet who stands in critique of the system, who keeps space between them and systems so they can speak truth to the system, and then the power of those who have rolled their sleeves up and are actually in the system working for all of the tiny little incremental changes. You need both. You need the, you need the person right in the heart of the beast, and you need the person standing outside of the beast going... This beast needs to be reformed, and you need you need these you need these two talking to each other and understanding the role of both. There's this guy I know who could probably bring those two groups together. This <laughs> convener well, named. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I like. Um, I mean, I have people who are very active politically on the Robcast because it's important for people to see 
We need people with great sense of integrity and intelligence and excellence involved in all the nuts and bolts of the political process. Because you drove here and those roads worked. So mm -hmm. somebody's running a road commission somewhere and taking our tax dollars to make sure the roads exist. Like, we are all deeply beneficial of this process. It's also, we need people standing up and saying that's not right and making noise. We need people all across the thing. And now more than ever. Would you say that what you're doing is kind of a new form of proselytizing in, a, in the positive way at the heart of what it's supposed to be from your tradition? It, is, is your interpretation of, of the Bible and Jesus's message and, and, and your take on how there's this blending that actually can bring about cohesiveness, would you, you may be uncomfortable with using that word, but in a way, isn't it really bringing the word to people in the yeah. way it should be? I'm telling a story. I'm telling a story and I'm making a case. And that's true. I, I am telling a story. And I'm, there's an element of, um, I'm trying to think how to say this. Somewhere along the way, I picked up, there's a seduction and a wooing. I'm, I want to talk about this in such a way. I'm going to do everything I can to talk about this in such a way that you get pulled into something. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I want to, I'm, my work, I want you to hear the music. I do want you to hear the music. So even when I'm like, no, man, you just get, you know, you can't take people where they don't want to go and all of my like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, everybody takes their own time and has their own path. I also, no, I, I, I want you to come along with us. <laughs> you, you, you focus on both the Old Testament and the New Testament yes. in your book. Do you believe that the future um, involves kind of a blending of those traditions in a way that we don't have now? Or how do you, yeah. or, and, or how do you see um, Judaism and Christianity coming together in the future? Do you, do you envision a new way of dialogue? Do you envision just changing the conversation? What, you know, because you didn't just focus on, you, you focused on the whole with this. Absolutely. So what does the whole look like in the future? I think it looks like our friendship. I'm constantly learning from you. I'm constantly inspired by you. I think that we're turning the gem together. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's mutual. And I, I just wonder if the, the future is one in which the different strands and traditions you own that once again paradox you own the distinctives you own them you and I have never been anything other than fully who we are we actually love the otherness of the other absolutely um, and the distinction for most people if it's not paradox the differences are the only thing there is and then the response to that is just which is why I don't do a lot of like quote unquote interfaith things. Then it just becomes a polite contest yep. where all we do is be like say really bland things about how we all have everything. Everything's all the same. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You, I'm sure you've been a yeah. part of those where oh, you're just yeah. like, please. Um, but the future is paradox where you and I are fully who we are and all the distinctives and differences are are not points of division, they're points of celebration. Like, how much do we laugh about all sorts of things from your, how you got to where you are and how I got to where I am? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like the four of us with our wives, how often do we laugh? And it's, it's some other space. And, I, and, I, and then the events that I do, it's very important for me to create overtly spiritual public spaces that haven't, that aren't co-opted. So you can be whatever you want. So I love it when people are like, I don't, I don't believe anything. I'm a science person. Welcome. Um, um, and yeah, and you never, oh, I don't know, never, but you don't convene people in churches or places of worship. That's public you, spaces. You convene that's in very places important that, that otherwise we would not define as having the potential. Which is why that, like when you and right? I and Pete Holmes did the Largo show together. Right. You create a space that's overtly spiritual. It's just blatantly, we're going to talk about this. We're going to draw from all these different lineages. Everybody's welcome. And that, and actually, 
and Pete and I have talked about this quite a bit with the two-man show that we've been doing. I think that's one of my... I feel like we're, we're exploring new space we're exploring new ways to think about this whole thing in which you're totally free to be exactly who you are with all of your lineage and tradition and forms and rituals and rites fine and yet in this space all of it can belong uh, i feel that very strongly in the work and for the robcast i love meeting people who are like i have none of this whatever background i the number of people who are like but i but i'm i'm coming along i love it I love it. My final question to you, because we've been going for a while. <laughs> you usually end your podcast by saying, what, grace and peace? Yes. What's grace to you? Grace to me is gift. Grace to me is unmerited favor. Grace is the, what meets you in your powerlessness, your despair, your helplessness, when you have no strength, when you have no answers, and kisses you on the forehead welcomes you home grace is the embrace when you don't feel worthy grace is the next breath you're going to take that you didn't even have to think to remind yourself to take you just received it naturally and you've been receiving your whole life so so grace to me is don't do a thing don't do a thing that's your problem your problem is you think the answer is don't do anything just sit just sit receive and then peace is shalom is increasing levels of harmony and goodness is you doing something, giving yourself to the increasing shalom of the world. So those two form everything that I do. Grace and, grace and peace isn't just like a salutation or a standoff. Grace and peace are these, these two polarities that exist in this infinite loop. And sometimes you need one and sometimes you need the other. Sometimes you need to be told, don't do a thing. And sometimes you need to be told, get off your ass and do something. And depends on where you are, what you need to hear. Well, with that, grace and shalom, <laughs> our friends. Thank you.